Hi, folks. This is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is May 6, 2013, and this is episode 1,124 of the Survival Podcast. It's Monday, and I know that means you're expecting a listener feedback show. You're actually going to get that tomorrow, because I wanted to bring uh, to you one more time Mr. Jeff Lawton, and he, uh, I did interview him on a Sunday. Interviewing Jeff is always a challenge, because, well, I'm about a day ahead of him in 12 hours plus, uh, so... What's night for him is morning for me, and what's morning for him is night for me. So um, we always have to do this kind of on an odd hour thing, and uh, he's always been good enough to do that, and he was this time. We have a lot to talk about today. Um, and I really want you, when we start talking about this, not just focus on the fact that he's got his online PDC available now, but some of the content that we cover today is pretty, uh, pretty amazing. Uh, Jeff and I have a discussion about permaculture ethics and looking at them in a new way, and I think it's... Uh, it's a pretty outstanding way to look at him. I'm not saying that just because it's my idea, but uh, I think it really is a part of what I've learned from Jeff about restrictions on design and how they lead to design flow. And I also want you to listen really intently when we start talking about the progress that's been made over in Australia with permaculture and how mainstream it's become there. And I think that's in no small part to the fact that the Permaculture Research Institute is there and that this type of education has been available in Australia for people for a very long time. And, and I'm going to tell you flat out, there are people in this country with permaculture design certificate courses that are doing an amazing job. And they are teaching true permaculture design, the type of training where once you have it, you could go anywhere in the world and design systems. You may not be able to run the backhoe, but you can talk to the earth mover and tell them what to do. You may not be an expert right away, but you have the foundation. And that includes things like I can look at the landscape and tell you the climate from the landscape profile. That includes not just understanding zones, but sectors and sector analysis and, and, and all of the things that go along with that. And then there are people who have decided that since enforcing the copyright is difficult across the ocean, they'll just set up a school and call it permaculture, and they'll they'll take the pieces they like about permaculture, and they'll leave out the rest, and then they'll bring their agendas or their own viewpoints, or they'll teach it as a design course, but it's really a regional thing. It's designed all around the region and things like that. And there's nothing wrong with the training that these people are doing, but it's not a design course. A design course is designed to be universal, and there's certain tenets and principles that have to be in it, or it's not truly a design course. And I think that part of what's holding permaculture back in this country and the UK specifically, our two nations, is a lot of the desire to drag a political agenda into permaculture, a lot of desire to make it all about the earth spirit and, and, and maybe some form of hippieism or paganism or whatever. And listen, guys, I have no problem with any of that stuff. I really don't. But permaculture is about science. It's a design science run by ethics. So it's an ethical design science. That's what it is. And there's no room in it for these other things at its foundational level. Now, a person that has a certain worldview that gets that fundamental understanding of permaculture will then practice it from that worldview. That's Fine, but the foundational education needs to be universal. I need to be able to have people from any background come into a design certification course, get the fundamental design science out of it, 
and walk away from it and then do with it as they please. But everybody should feel as though they're getting the same quality of education based on fact and science. And then they can take their worldview and apply permaculture from their worldview. That's what anybody would do with an education. But you're not going to go to a university, let's say, take a course on engineering and hear about how the earth spirit moves the cogs within the machine. You're going to hear how the machine freaking works. And then if you want to bring that etherical essence to your work, you're more than welcome to. That's what I'm saying about this. And I'm going to tell you guys, and I, I keep saying this, but I won't name the, the place that I did my certification with, but I did a permaculture design certification, full certification. I, I don't value it anymore as a certification um, because when I learned what a PDC really was by watching the PDC on DVD with Bill and Jeff, uh, I immediately realized that's not what I got. And I'm going through this online course with you guys, those of you that are taking it, And I'll consider that a valid certification when I get it signed off by Jeff in the end. I just want to say that at the beginning of today's show. Before I get Jeff on, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day number one today uh, is JM Bullion. You know, when I made a decision to let go a previous sponsor who sold silver and gold, uh, I went out to find you guys a new one. Usually I go to the list of people waiting to be on the show as a sponsor because it's long. Um, but in this case, I was like, you know, and we didn't have TSP Mint yet, and I still think we need a place for generic silver and gold and things like that and, and silver eagles because we're not going to do that TSP Mint. Um, so I went out and I looked for a company, and this was the criteria. Were they a good, solid company with a good reputation? JM Bullion, check. Uh, did they have good competitive pricing? JM Bullion, check. Did, were they good on delivery and customer service? JM Bullion, check. Here's the thing. There were a lot of other companies. That check, 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 right? That they, they, they could, you know, say all of those things. And then when I talked to them, you know, I said, can I talk to like the owner or the head of a division at least or VP or whatever? And they said, no. You talk to the marketing person who decide whether or not they want to spend money with you. That's it. Uh, next, when a JM bullion, I start talking to the owner of the company from day one. There's a reason that that's important to me. If something's wrong, I want to be able to get in touch with the people in charge and make it right for you. And that's what I can do with JM Bullion. And that's what I can't do with some of the larger, uh, people out there. I just, they, you know, I'm not important enough to them. Uh, JM, I'm important too, and so are you. Check them out today for great pricing on silver and gold. Uh, next up today is the Berkey guy, Jeff the Berkey guy Gleason. Now, what are you going to get from the Berkey guy? Shocking as it might be, he sells Berkey water filtration systems. He sells some other really great stuff. Like, did you know he sells Mountain House and all MSB members get a great discount on Mountain House product in the MSB? Next time you're going to buy Mountain House, go in the MSB and see what discount Jeff's offering and, and uh, see if it works out for you because Mountain House is Mountain House no matter where it comes from. But when it comes to a Berkey, I can't say the same thing. Um, the Berkey water filtration system is, is the best on the market, but do you want to be the guy that got your Berkey from the non-Berkey guy, or do you want to be the guy that got your Berkey from the Berkey guy himself? That's who I'd want to be. He's got some of the best pricing available because he's one of their top dealers in the world. He's got people he can call if there is a mistake because humans make mistakes. We've all seen that. Uh, even on our end here, you've seen that recently. And the thing about making mistakes isn't do you make mistakes, it's do you fix them, do you correct them, and do you make it right for the customer. Jeff always does that. He's a great guy and a great friend. Check him out today. His website is directive21.com. Uh, both the Berkey Guy and JM Bullion do offer discounts to member support brigade members on various things. Check it out in the benefits section of your member support brigade. With that, good segment into that. Uh, if you want to help support the show at 18.3 cents an episode and get discounts to pay for themselves, uh, like 100 
150 bucks off the permaculture design course, and that pays for the, uh, the, the membership for three years right there. Uh, check out the member support brigade. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on members. Uh, you'll get all those great discounts. You'll help support the show, and uh, you'll also uh, get some content that's not available anywhere else. Uh, with that, I do have uh, the housekeeping knocked out today, and it's uh, my pleasure to say to uh, Mr. Jeff Lawton, hey, Jeff, man, welcome back to the Survival Podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here again. <laughs> hey, so you got some pretty exciting news. You, uh, you, you've, you've done something that we've talked about a lot, you and I, uh, kind of off the record, but you kind of made it really publicly known about a week or two ago that it was going to happen and introduced this online permaculture design course. Um, and uh, by the time people are here in this podcast, it'll have been live for about three days. Right now, it's probably a day, a day. Uh, or even maybe half a day at this point. Uh, how is how's it going so far? Uh, well, we're very very happy. Um, we've got that diversity of uh, students that we were hoping to get. They're really broad. They cover all sorts of landscapes, climates, and and different locations across the earth. Um, a lot of people come in from America uh, with the internet connections, of course. But uh, a lot of people who couldn't get to a PDC. Um, because of different scenarios, they're very, very happy. A lot of people talking about how they'd like to set up demonstration sites, help other people get started when they've done their, their PDC, and they'd like to, a lot of people talking about wanting to go into teaching. Um, so, um, and, and a lot of people, we've asked them to introduce themselves as they've booked in and, um, have been going for quite a few hours now looking at all the registrations and, and, uh, and answering people's initial questions and welcome, welcoming people. But uh, a lot of people are saying they've just heard about permaculture, they've just been switched on. A lot of people came through your website, um, but um, we've, we've, we're cracking into a new audience, which is great. That's what we really wanted to do. We wanted to expand permaculture across the, the global field um, of humanity. You know, I, I came to this about five years ago, and initially I just heard the word and kind of got that overall concept, at least I thought I did. And I thought permaculture was, well, we plant trees and bushes and vines and berries and stuff like that instead of corn and, and cabbage. I, that's what I initially thought I, I would get out of it. And as I got into the design science, I became more and more fascinated with it. Um, I took a design course, and I thought, well, okay, this is, this is what it is. And it was a good course. I won't say who because of what I'm going to say next. But shortly thereafter, you and Bill released a, a PDC on DVD, and then I sat through that, and I felt like a lot of what people are calling a PDC really doesn't give the end-to-end -end concept of design. Can you talk about what a person learns in a, a, a true PDC, a, a something that covers everything from landscape profiles to sector analysis and all the things that you're going to cover uh, with your students in this virtual PDC? Yeah, well... Um That PDC was the first one I actually taught with Bill, and um, it uh, it covered it as a, a totally live sense of, of a, a film filmed PDC, um, and this one is more specifically aimed at this type of of uh, technology. So we're 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 teaching very specifically, so it transfers most easily all the illustrations, all the um, all the lectures that we talk of. Uh, and go through, they're very, very specifically clear so that uh, my intention was to make it the clearest 
and most precise PDC I've ever taught. So we go through a whole set of, of, of lectures which cover the Permaculture Designer's Manual, 14 chapters. So we introduce the subject and how it is a design science based in ethics. We're about ethics and true science, not metaphysics, uh, not nothing that's unproven. It's all truly practical science. And then we go through actually how it works as a concept and a theme and how you approach the foundation of it. And then the methods, how you actually approach the actual physical subject, what you're actually doing. And then we then we go into patterns and how patterns in nature demonstrate certain forms that actually are expressions of, of energy and, and how, how energy is captured and in, in a natural system and, and those expressions are the, the actual pattern forms and the shapes of the landscape, the shapes of the rivers and the shapes of, of many things. And how if we, how we actually work with those, it gets to be um, a more sustainable system. We go all the way on defining why sustainability is modeled in nature so well. And if we work with that in a really common sense, practical way, how it actually starts to work for us. And it's our best actual partnership we can, we can make. And, and really, some of the things that are now becoming obvious is our present form of agriculture and our original agriculture was really about storage crops that gave power to people either to dominate other populations or their population and create shortage and storage and extension of simplified systems where when we go into a, a, a model, a natural model, we actually go into an ever-extending abundance. So we fully explore that and explain that to people and give them examples. And then from there we go on to under, talking about climate and the, and the facts of climate, the factors of climate, and how that totally affects where you are. You may be able to design, you may know the, the, the foundation of design, but if you, don't, if you can't analyze exactly how that affects climate, and how climate changes the way you design. Then we go right into landscape forms, all the different forms of landscape. We've had a lot of people ask us about flat land uh, because for some reason um, they thought that only, only hill slopes would hold water and, and, and flat lands can't really function, and yet flat lands are some of the easiest landscapes to work on, and most farmers prefer flat land for good reason. So we go through stage after stage, soils, and how soils work, water and how water works, earth moving with the soil to capture water. Those subjects start to link together. And then specifics on the climate themselves, the, 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 the humid tropical climates, the dry lands, which are so different because they're actually dry, and the cool to cold humid. We go into specifics on aquaculture, which is often not really included in a lot of our heritage in the last 100 years or so in the Western world anyway. Um, in Asia, there's a lot more understanding of aquaculture so, and how, how much potential um, growing elements and stability in water itself uh, can be included in the way we provide our needs. All the way through, we're also talking in climates what specific 
built infrastructure is appropriate. So your your housing, your infrastructure that you build, your 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 buildings, and how they what materials, insulation, thermal mass actually works in the most energy efficient way. Um, also, your appropriate energy consumption and the appropriate renewable energies you can use. And, and technologies that have been used before and the appropriate technology that can be combined today. Waste systems are all part of that, how we can use waste systems to be an asset in the landscape. So it's not just growing systems. It's also our, um, the technology we need to build our houses in an appropriate way, the energy to run our houses, the waste systems of our houses, understanding all the solar aspects, whether it's good to be in the sun or out of the sun, depending on our climate and our landscape. Um, and then we go on to, finally, the, the, the invisible structures and how we design our local community, our interactions of local economy, how we set up village systems, and how we set up uh, our systems where we can govern our community so that we can actually re-identify ourselves with the environment, with our productive systems. And today, although we carry so much heritage from the past in traditions um, and our ancestors carried forward the seeds and biology that we use to provide our needs. Now we have a global access to all kinds of species that we've never had before. And I stress the point, appropriate, appropriate technology that can be combined with that. And overriding that is the absolute intention to design with ethics and to govern what we do with good earth care ethics and people care ethics but the, the intention to design the way we supply our needs in, in, a, in an environmentally enhancing way, in a way that actually makes the whole world more abundant. Now, that, that makes people think in a very exciting way. They get very excited about that thinking process. It, it actually makes people change the way they see the world and they think about the world. So that's, that's really the buzz. That's what gets people really fired up um, and most people will say that when they've finished a PDC that they've, they've completely transformed the way they look at the world and now they have a very positive way to interact and, and they feel like going into action, they feel like taking action and, and that's the result we want I'd like to kind of discuss a little bit about the ethics um, at this point because I have a way to put this that maybe you've never heard before, and I love when I say something you've never heard. So one of the things that I learned from you is the more restrictions on a design, the more creative the designer, and the more the design flows. So that five-acre property that you did the five acres to abundance with, I remember when you explained it, you did it actually more in-depth in that PDC on DVD about some of the complications with returning to catchment and all, and how those restrictions actually made the design more elegant in the end. And some of the urban stuff, because it's so small, when you have certain things that limit what you can do, those limits start to send you in the direction of a solution. So to me, one of the things I've heard from people is we should just say the ethics are a nice thing and put them on the table and try to do that, but let's not get into much of a hairy discussion and get bogged down in it. But to me, the ethics drive a solution because, so if I'm a designer, I come into a blank slate property, 
And I start out with, okay, the first three things I have to do is everything I do on this piece of property needs to not be damaging to the system itself, to the earth. So that's the first that, that's the ethic. And people, I think, get that. They understand that. We only have one. All wealth comes from the earth. So sure, we don't want to harm it. And they'll get over that one. Then they say, well, I don't want to harm people. Unless you're a psychopath, you, you kind of get on board with that one pretty quick because harming people is not a good thing. But then I have to start thinking, so everything I'm going to put into this design has to take those first two into account. Then we get into the one people like to change. Um, return, not redistribution of surplus. And here's where that becomes a solution ethic. When I look at that property and I start thinking, well, I'm going to put on a Zone 3 broad acre crop amaranth or corn or something like that, the people that want to change that to redistribute see the surplus as either the grain or the cash profit from that grain. But that crop produces also a surplus of biomass. So now to follow that ethic, I have to return that surplus back into my system because that, that's a surplus as well. Or if it's cattle or sheep, I've got a manure. I can't redistribute it and make it somebody else's problem. I've got to build a system that returns it to the first two. So those become my first three restrictions on the design and start that thinking process so that I can take all the other principles and elements of design and bring them into a sustainable solution. And if I don't think about that from the beginning of the design, I rob myself of the creative flow that comes from those initial three restrictions. Yeah, yeah, that's an absolutely great way to say it. That's uh, wonderful. Um you, you, as you go through applying permaculture, and, and if you are an active person like, like, like you are, Jack, and you're, you're dealing with a lot of people as well as actually on the ground, um, you, you keep redefining and, and, and um, rediscovering uh, concise ways to understand things like the ethics. And... Um, that's a, that's a great way to look at it, is they're the restrictions of the way you design. And one of the early surplus, one of the very first surpluses that we put into our work as permaculture designers is the design. We actually, a surplus application, a big difference between the way we approach land and the way we approach supplying people with their needs is we make sure we really emphasize design. We put in a surplus of design. We put in enormous amounts of extra care and sensitivity to the initial mainframe design. So we really make sure that any surplus can be redistributed through a system. And, and, the, and a system is, is, our systems are so well thought out. Um, you couldn't do a worse job than what's being done when you apply what we do. No, you just couldn't because we have so many checks and balances about the way we assess a landscape. We, we really care about the way, what the landscape has that we can help to make it a better place. So you know, I, I've started to look at, at design as being one of our surpluses. You know, we have a surplus of design that we apply and we keep returning design thinking. We keep redefining and, 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 and we're refining more and more that intimate understanding of any design we're involved in. So we're continuously checking that on ourselves and that's a really good way to approach the ethics. Um, but I, 
I, I, I very much like that. that you say that that's the first limits that you, you that, that you put on. It's to check and recheck and make sure that you are really doing the best job you can de- designing a system. Um, I tell a lot of my students that you you need to spend a lot of time profoundly thinking and about the main frame of design. Don't rush that first stage because that's like the foundations of any design. Later on, when you get out to the little tiny elements that are so moldable in a system as it develops, they almost become like intuitive blink decisions. You're, you're very intimate with the system then. It's almost like you, um, you become psychic with the system. You understand it's, it, it, you know, um, you don't question your intuition later on. Because the system's flowing, and you're out there, and you look at a space, and you go, well, for instance, I've got a, um, a, a somebody would call a weed or a, a species growing in that area that I, I don't want there. But by that time, you know the flow of the system. You go, well, I'm going to put you know uh, X there, whatever it ends up being for your climate. And you just know that kind of that tree will go there, or that this element needs a little bit of a tweak. And the more advanced the system becomes, the easier that becomes. Yeah. Yeah, the more advanced your knowledge becomes, and uh, which comes from actually doing after after understanding design, the more you involve yourself in a landscape, the more relaxed you come about local weeds. You, you become very, very familiar with what they're about, and um, and and initially they seem huge and overwhelming, and some of the major problems that people are looking at, and they're really looking at a symptom. And, and they need to look past that, uh, what the cause is. And when you understand the cause, it's, it's, it's very easy to look at the symptom because it's actually an advantage to understand it. Uh, I, um, and I really like to help people with that stuff so they can just put that heavy bag down. They don't need to be carrying that bag at all. Yeah, and I think with the weed thing, people like really need to get an understanding of how wonderful weeds are because when I looked at property, and I looked nine months before I found my place, when I would go to a property and see somebody that had been maybe farming hay uh, in a rural property, and I walked the property, and everything looked right about the shape of the property, but there wasn't a single weed, right? It was all the same one species of grass growing beautifully, and the one place was 10 acres and irrigated that way, and there wasn't a single weed on 10 acres, Jeff. And I went, oh, this place has been loaded down with herbicide. If I see dandelions and docks and things like that, I know that that place is in a natural state. I'm starting from uh, a natural state at least. Maybe it's not where I want it, but getting that system into production, I just feel, is going to be easier because I'm not fighting agrochemicals. Yeah, yeah, which which really restrict the indicators. Now, weeds just give you all these indications that dandelions are decompactors and, you know, there are so many indicators. We talk about this through the course, and, and it's one of the sections where people really enjoy that because I can see that they, they start to relax with that level of understanding. You also brought something up when you were going over the overview of the course that, that I, I found interesting. I always like to draw analogies. So I come from a, a technology background and a network analysis and things like that. And one of the things we learned in that industry pretty quick was that instead of having a single piece of test equipment that you could move around the network, if you could actually distribute the test equipment throughout the network, we call the distributed analysis, that you got a more holistic analysis of the network. 
Well, food systems today are far more of a centralized system. They have all these storage crops, these grain crops, and that allows the accumulation and the amass of power by a few to feed the many. Where, to me, permaculture is this opportunity to, deter, to, ter, to turn the food distribution system into a distributed network, far more, uh, and not just local for the sake of being local because it sounds cool and it's a yuppie thing now to be a locavore, but to actually have the security of that food system being distributed throughout an entire community, an entire nation, hopefully eventually the entire world, and put that food back into that situation where it is, is, is readily available because it's everywhere. And that should increase security for everyone, and it should also increase the ability of individuals to control their own lives. Yeah, and it gives everybody that infinite number of variations of individuality. You, you just have so many variations when, you're, when your aim is to be as diverse as possible. And we really don't have any idea at this moment in history how diverse each particular location could be because we're still mixing up a lot of global species because they've only just all become available to us and some are still becoming available. So we're, what we're doing is we're building new identity. We will carry forward some traditions of the past with all great honor, but there will be whole new identities. So this is a, um, a new um, threshold of humanity to re-identify itself in a way where we intentionally want to make the world more abundant. And therefore, we're, we're creating a deposition system where we're depositing more and more biology more and more richness, more and more high-quality soil, and more and more species within any one landscape. Uh, uh, even our recipe books will, will all have a place related to a date. So it will be your location for one month of the year. The recipes will include elements that are uh, ingredients that are grown at that time and are available to you at that time. So this identifies your region. Where the present system, everything's grown at a great big distance, it's all really simplified, it's all extractive, it's all exploitive, it's all depletive, and we're going into a more and more monocultured people, landscape, and culture. It's all homogenizing and at a great loss on a massive landscape scale. And, and we've lost all intimacy with the wonders of, of the landscape that not only in its natural state, but in our manipulated productive state where it's still wonderful and, and, and something that we, we have endless fascination with when we make that intimate set of connections. And that can be right through suburbs, right through local environments. It, it has no reason whatsoever to be at a distance anywhere. It doesn't matter which climate. You have a uniqueness of the diversity that is possible wherever you are. Yeah, I keep talking to people that, you know, well, I can't grow this in my climate or that in my climate. I'm like, if I moved you to another climate, the first thing you'd want to do is plant something you could have planted in your other climate. It, it's, a, it's that grass is greener thing, you know, or when, we, when you brought out the, the, the micro spaces video, um, people were saying, you know, well, what can I plant where I'm at? And I'm like, well, you're in America. Didn't you notice like one of the dominant tree species that guy in the first garden planted was plums and apples? And, and we can pretty much grow those just about throughout the whole of, of North America, it, it, all in except the most northern climates. And there's even a few apples we can push in a like zone four-ish, you know. So I, I just think there is that kind of a tendency of people to look at what they can't do versus what they can do. And I, m my feeling is the more you understand design 
and, and permaculture, the more you tend to focus on well, what what really works well here, and, and let's do that. Yeah, uh, Bill, Bill wrote a famous article called Phases of Abundance, and the first thing you concentrate on are the elements that easily go into phases of abundance. Um, it's kind of funny what you um, you reminded me of. I was working in in Bali. Um, which is quite a, a beautiful uh, tropical paradise, really, and, and um, it has its problems now, but it's still got a lot of beautiful infrastructure in place and thousands of wet terraces and, and quite lush forests. But I was um, passing, um, I got stopped in traffic, and there was a wedding, and people were carrying to the wedding as a, as a, as a wedding present little gold inlaid cardboard boxes with velvet cushions with a nicely polished apple on the top because <laughs> it's nearly impossible to grow apples in the tropics and especially somewhere like a tropical island like Bali and this is crazy because like what's the point in this you can grow these gorgeous tropical fruits but apples are very scarce so it's got some prestige um, so we've got sort of carried away in the most bizarre situations here, and um, there's just no need for that. Um, it, you know, we, we need to realise how, how abundant each individual site can be, and then we can go a lot further from from what's been possible in the past because we have this opportunity now. Never before has humanity put itself in this intentional position to repair the world with creative design thinking that benefits the abundance of biology. This is a first. It's a new neural pathway. This is like when humanity started to write, read and write its own description of, of, of the environment. We actually started to think a new way. This is a new way of thinking. This is actually an evolution. And I can see this, this could go quite viral now. We're hoping that these new systems will allow us to take things to more of a tipping point. I, yeah, I think that's important because there are so many people that are in power. We call them politicians and bureaucrats that have been convinced by the lobbyists, the Monsantos of the world, etc., that, that you know the natural growing, organic growing, all of these things will starve the planet. That everybody will die, and they actually believe this. And I think the only way to break through that is programming, and it, it's programming accomplished with propaganda and money over and over again for generations now, is to prove it, to put so many systems into abundance in so many places, from the micro to the, to the huge, that it's, it becomes completely undeniable. Uh, we have the proof now, but you, it's not in their face enough. It's not everywhere. To get that distributed... Uh, Distributed success rate that's, that's everywhere to where you turn around and, you know, every 20th backyard at least is, is into a permaculture abundance that, you know, one in 20 farms start to take that turn to, to a point where it becomes so obvious that the one thing that gets the attention of those in power is the potential to lose their jobs. Um, so that people start clamoring for it and saying, why aren't we doing more of this? Yeah, you are seeing that reaction and you get some places now, um, where there's, um, you know, um, food forests that are being supported by governments throughout cities, like Vancouver is putting a, um, a city food forest in to the main, main streetscape um, because they have a politician that supports that sort of thing. Um, so you're getting, you're getting global examples coming up. And um, 
there are quite famous people, uh, Gerald Diamond, uh, Toby Hemingway in permaculture have, have made statements like uh, that uh, agriculture may have been huma humanity's worst mistake in history um, because we were actually healthier uh, before and now there are statistics um, that, that have been actually re-examined around the famines, the epidemics, and of course we now know the environmental problems. Um, that agriculture has developed into this, this absolute monster, but it, it started off as just quite a silly idea and, and probably our worst mistake. And, and now with the information age, um, a lot of people are looking at reversing this quickly and we the people can do it en masse and I think it will be uh, a we the people move that will uh, shake the pol politicians to realize this this has to be something they understand because you know the voters uh, are demonstrating this is what they want yeah and I, what I like about that is it's, it's what I believe always works with big problems and it's a it's a bottom-up not a top-down approach when anybody ever takes a problem this big and says well I'm gonna fix it by going through the system and goes through that political system, it never survives. But when it's done by the individual and it builds momentum from the bottom up and shoved back in the machine, so to speak, then it's it's pretty much unstoppable. By the by the time they're actually involved, it's like, well, we gotta we gotta accept this now because it's everywhere. Uh, it's almost like sneaking one by them, so to speak, because there is a lot of money that has a vested interest in keeping straight line monocrops going as the primary means of feeding the world because, well, it consolidates power and wealth. Yeah, such a simplified system and a simple way to make those gazillions of dollars. Um, but, but the people don't have compromise on this. There's, I mean, the people that are involved in these systems are, you know, our systems do not compromise. So um, people start with ethics and have ethics at the core of the way they approach this and that's what's so important. And traditionally our ancestors always operated with ethics. So there's, there's um, science needs ethics and so that's why it's absolutely central to our design approach to providing all our needs in the most abundant way. I, I think the ethics are so simple because I, I, you know, they're basically what you teach a baby, right? With, with just instinctively, so you know, you end up with a baby by the time they're a toddler. Maybe they start to the point where they're kind of testing things and they don't get things intellectually yet. So maybe they'll smack their sister or smack a dog, and you teach them not to not to do that. If they throw something on the ground as they get a little older, you teach them teach them pick that up and throw that away. I mean, I, I just think that the, the reason that they work so well is they are intrinsically human. Yeah, yeah. I think um, Bill started off by analysing up to 18 traditional ethics that traditional and indigenous people used to govern the way they behaved in their environment. And he synthesised it down to that simple, concise three ethics of um, care for the earth, care for people, and the return of surplus to the first two ethics. Um, so it's, it's, it's really a governing way that we use science and technology applied to natural biology that's so productive. Let's talk about a few of the things that seem to always come up that I've had some feedback from your web team that you get the most questions about with people that are new to the concept of, of permaculture design. The number one is because, I, and I think this is because so much work has come out of Australia and, and there's so much that's showcased around the PRI, which is in a subtropical climate, 
people want to know how well does this really work in cold climates, in the cool temperate climates? Yeah, cold climates is a, a very interesting question because in the cold climates, you just get such lovely long days in summer. You don't get any less sunlight over the year. You just get most of it during the summer months where the, the sun is a, a, still at a, quite a low angle and it's very gentle and it's usable all day. So um, the great thing about the cold climates is you, you get rest in the winter and uh, the whole system recharges most of the decomposition of the woody material breaks down over the winter. So breaking down wood in the ground with hugel beds and systems like that, the breakdown of the organic matter, particularly the wood, is over the cold, wet winter. And that's not the time when most growing takes place. And by the time it gets to the springtime, all of that is a recharge to the soil. So all your non-woody plants, the herbs, go to the ground. Most of your trees lose their leaves and recharge the ground. Your soils are more fertile. They're deeper and they're richer in soil life, actually. That much richer than the tropics and much deeper than the tropics. And, and they the, don't leach away as fast either. They, they hold that nutrient longer. Yeah, I mean, you actually get lighter rain over a longer period, but the volume of rain is less quite often, and the tropical rain is very, very heavy. So it leaches those shallow soils and those fast-moving systems. Very easy to degrade the tropics and even easier to break down the environments of the deserts. So if you want to look at whether the largest vegetables are grown in the world, who wins the giant vegetable competitions? It's always gardeners in Alaska. Absolutely. Alaska or Maine, one or the other, yeah. Yeah. It's those cold climates that have those long days. Sure, sure, you have to uh, create storage crops, and often you have to incorporate animals because they're an incredible storage system and an energy system, really, in the way they transfer uh, material. So they're making conversions of elements that are often oversupplied if they're edible or not even edible to people and converted into... Um, human food and also cycling all kinds of fertilizer in their manures and their actions. So it, it's probably one of the easier climates to be self-sufficient and self-reliant and produce most of your own needs is, is the, cold, the cold temperate. And there are lots of things you can do in the winter when you get all kinds of building jobs done or even um, educational jobs where you might write or you might be creative you have that time, so it's, it's more of an annual cycle than an absolutely rigorous daily cycle that you get in the tropics with very little rest. Now, um, no, there's no problem at all about the temperate climates, and when you see where you know, a lot of the world's civilizations are and, and have developed, they've come out of those um, climates between the Mediterranean and the cold climate. Yeah, and I'm, I'm right now I've just walked over to my bookshelf and picked up uh, my copy of Permaculture One, which was, you know, kind of the seminal work on permaculture. And I'm leafing through it and some of the design diagrams and all. But when I get to things like some of the plants recommended and I start looking at it, I'm reading one of the tables in it, alfalfa, almonds, anise, apples, blackberries, blueberries, broad beans, clovers, coriander, crab apple. These are all temperate climate plants. This this system actually, when Bill originated it, had a huge focus on temperate climates. Yep, 
Yep, it was, it was originally conceived in Tasmania in quite a cool temperate climate. And, and the next books um, emphasise subtropics. So we, we went through the climate, but no, no problem at all. Um, I think we're, we've, we've lost those relationships with the natural system where we can't really see the food anymore and, uh, and we don't realise how we combine food with natural systems. Absolutely. You mentioned animals there briefly. To me, getting animals into a system is highly important. I wouldn't say critical because critical means it needs to happen. And we've seen people, especially in the urban environments where it's restricted, do it without animals. They have to bring in material, though, to kickstart the system, generally a lot of organic matter. But if possible, how important do you think it is to make uh, animals at least some component of, of a design system? Well, animals can do a lot of work for you. So they're, they're, they can be some of your hardest workers in a system. Um, they're some of the best storage in a system, and they're great converters. So they, they, and what we're doing is facilitating creative conversions. So there's all these creative events that we facilitate, and there's almost what almost seem like miracles of conversion. So you, and, and there's been some interesting work done on this um, chickens will produce chicken eggs in a soil that has no calcium um, and, and it's, in, it's almost like a transmutation of, of elements because they have to produce calcium to produce an egg yet they make that conversion and, and there's all kinds of things like that that go on through animals now they're not essential no you um, so the colder climates, it's more difficult to, to set up a system without animals. The colder it gets, it gets a little bit more difficult all the time. But um, they're very, very useful. And it goes from the very small animals to the, to the larger animals. And there are more and more domestic animals that we can now include in systems because we've, we've moved the domestic animals of the world um, right around. So um, people are using you know, all kinds of, of elements from the small to the large um, and there are more wild animals that people are domesticating. So in, in Australia people are even farming now kangaroos and wallaby. They've oh wow, I had no idea about that. Gourmet meats and, and also <laughs> e emu and, and that doesn't even start on the aquatic species. Uh, there's all kinds of potential out there for, for con to continue to domesticate and speciate in, in, in a way that, that is convenient for our needs. Uh, there's nothing wrong with speciation and selection. That's how we've ended up with the edible foods we, we have in the supermarket. Yeah, I mean, we have what they call a huge problem over here. We have uh, the feral hogs, and they number in the millions and I think only in America would a, a, a good-eating, hardy animal uh, that you can hunt almost with, with ruthless means that still will survive and still will come back and always be there and could feed you know, tens of thousands of people uh, would be considered a problem. Uh, there's, there's, there's other nations where they, you know, they would love to have that so, you know, so-called problem. And that's an example of a domestic animal that's gone the other, well, actually returned, right? But it seems to me that we could build systems here specifically to harvest uh, those feral hogs 
on land that's not being used for anything else right now at all that would encourage them to gravitate to there and make them easier to harvest as a protein source and actually turn that problem into a solution. And I, I think that that's part of the reversal of thinking, that what we see as that problem, that has to be like, okay, well, what can I do with that? Because here I've got, I mean, I don't know how familiar you are with our issue with that, but when you talk about the kangaroos and the wallabies, it made me think of that. We've got these things in Texas, probably 10 million of these things running around. And that's not a stretch on the number, by the way. That's a, that's probably a real number. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have uh, we have wild pigs as well. We have the domestic pig gone wild in Australia, and um, I think the classics worldwide are the the, the pigs, the goats, the deer, and um, we actually have wild camels in Australia that have gone wild from the original camel trains that opened up the outback here. And they're said to be the best camels in the world now. They export them if they can catch them. There's, there's millions of camels gone wild in Australia. Because wow. um, they've, tough, they've toughened up to the Australian conditions. They, they're, they're, they're prize camels for racing if they can catch them. Um, but in a lot of parts of the world, camel is milked and um, it's a very special milk, and um, it's also uh, bred for meat. Um, yeah, so th- there's, and I know in America, and I've seen it, the deer problem as well. Um, in some areas, yes, yeah. And, and I was very surprised to see in Hawaii, there was, um, I was working on Molokai, that there was deer, pigs, and goats as a problem. Um, really, the problem is the solution, I, I'm presently developing a system where I'm I'm doing some research with goats, and I'm going to prove, and I'm pretty sure I've I've pinned it down how I can reforest with goats. So that's oh, almost awesome. a, that's almost an oxymoron for most people. Yeah, because generally they deforest, but I, I think that there's probably a way to harness the behavior. Uh, when you mentioned deer, I had a guy that emailed me one time. He said, Jack, I've been trying to grow a garden since you, I started listening to you. And last year over my garden, I shot 15 deer and barely got anything out of my garden. I emailed him back. I said, your garden grows deer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah you got a deer garden, 15 deer. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know where he lives, but there's states here where that's a, a totally legal limit because of the population. I think in Florida they have a 30-day season, but you can shoot two a day. Almost like a yeah. rabbit limit in you know in, in some other states. So there is that potential to harness that because I know some people would rather eat sweet potato than deer, but I'd rather eat deer than sweet potato. There's always there's always a consumer for that product. Yeah, a, a wonderful old gardener in Idaho showed me a garden that was holding out deer with a single um, single wire electric fence. Hmm. Interesting. I, I couldn't believe it. It was just you know only up to my knees, and, and then she pointed out that every 20 feet there was a, a, a patch of, of uh, aluminum foil, uh, cooking foil, you know, the metal, metal foil yeah. uh, used in your kitchen, wrapped onto, onto the fence, and she said just every couple of weeks she smears a bit of peanut butter on that uh, foil oh. and, switch, and switches the fence on. <laughs> and, and, and she said those deer are coming and they lick that peanut butter, they never come back again. And, and, and I put that up on, on a video, I filmed the lady saying, and I put it up on a video on our site, and I recently, during this launch, I had a, a gentleman come in and, and, and thank me for that, and he said, we're in the Adder Islands of Scotland, and we have a real problem with deer, and I saw that, and we've got a big, wide electric fence tape, and we smear it with peanut butter, and he sent me a film that the company that make the tape 
are actually showing people. They just put a bit of peanut butter on it, and they show these deer walk up to it, and the first one that touches it spooks the whole herd. They're gone. Um, um, and, and that's a pretty <laughs> get your attention. Wow. <laughs> I mean, I think you'd have to pay people a pretty big fee to get most people on a dare to uh, to lick an electric fence. Yeah. And and that's a cheap result because I've seen people put pretty expensive fences up to stop deer. Um, but it's I've fail. also I've, <laughs> I've also heard uh, Bill Mollison and later on Sepp Holzer talk about bone tar, which is a mm-hmm. traditional a traditional system to repel deer, you know, and bone tar is pretty easy to make. It's like making a, a sort of bone biochar tar. It's about as simple as making biochar, and um, it's it's an, a, an old traditional method. So there's old and there's new technologies. We can put them all together. The funniest thing I ever heard Bill talk about was this, uh, this fence for snails with the PVC pipe and the little piece of... Uh wire around the top and the snail's eyes would touch the the wire and he was like you could run it with a a nine volt battery you know um (laughs) and it was like you know you can scale down i never even thought that you could scale down something like an electric (laughs) fence but um it, it was pretty pretty cool to even think about that scaling up and scaling down and how that translates because like when we do urban all we're doing with a food forest and urban is I, I, I likened it in the presentation I just did to you can get a big picture online and it's too big and you grab the corner and you drag and drop it till it's a, you scale it. The whole picture, as you drag it, just scales down. So we can go into an urban situation. We put in full-size trees but prune them like that guy did at about seven feet. And then you just keep every other element of that layered system scaled in relation to what would be the new canopy. You're touching a very important point here. Because it's the scale of the order of size that good permaculture designers really understand. It's one of the profound mainframes. It's being able to come down in scale and go up in scale appropriately. And when you get it wrong, you are out of order. And that is a, a, a you know, that's a saying, obviously, in, in, in the English language. And it, and it means something very important. When you're in order of the scale of size of application, then you're in a productive system. When you're out of order, you're in a destructive system. And that's something we understand well. So Bill was scaling down there to a a snail electric fence, but very clever stuff. Yeah, yeah. So, hey, I do have a question for you on on your site with the the new launch of of the PDC. So you put out these five videos, and, and then people were saying to me, well, now... I can't get to those those videos because it goes to the sign up. Are you guys going to make those videos available again? The the, you know, the ones you did before you brought out the PDC. Um, yeah, once you've signed up, um, those videos are available to you again, um, and then we're going to bring. Now, we're working on how we can facilitate more and more videos. So we've just got to see, you know, what it is we've got to handle now. And once people sign up, we make those available. And then once we've gone through the sign up, we're going to see how we go to bring in more and more videos and make things available to people. Gotcha. Right at the the moment, we're just working out how we facilitate what we've started um, because the interest has been so great. And we really want to keep the quality up. We don't want 
we want this to be the best PDC we can possibly produce. I'm, I'm convinced this is the best PDC I have ever taught. And we don't want to stop here. We want to make it better. So I, I'm, this is a learning experience, but we're definitely going to hold the quality right up there. Awesome. So, hey, another thing you talked about briefly when you were given the mile-high overview was uh, aquaculture and how we've lost uh, that as a component of what we're doing. And I, I think that in this country goes back to its, its – its, 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 I wouldn't say yeah, – I'd say it's founding because the founding of the modern America, it, it was never really brought here. It never showed up here. I think we were already into – plowing in rows, and that was what we did when, when people came here. But it's not just Asia that used to have this. This was There's there's still some old sites like in, in like Czechoslovakia of these systems where basically they had multiple ponds, and they drain a pond one year, seed it and put cattle in it, and flood the other one and grow carp in it and flip-flop those things back and forth. And there are there, there's places and things like that all over the world that uh, I think we're trying to, to discover uh, the remnants of, so we can bring them back before they disappear. Oh, yeah. The production in aquaculture is 30 times at least in protein per area than land-based protein. So it's extremely productive. And, and uh, in the commercial aquaculture, which is quite destructive by, dis- by exploiting the ocean, um, so, you know, they harvest three kilos of anchovy to grow one kilo of, of aquaculture fish. We're not talking about that industrial system. We're talking about systems similar to what was, was happening in the past. So, yeah, Czech Republic and Hungary, if you go for Christmas dinner, you're going to get carp because that was our traditional Christmas dinner in, in Europe. Um, and what happened in America was that the, the cod was such a phenomenon. Um, so the smoke cod of the Atlantic dominated the fish um, exploitation. So that was then that almost took out all of the aquaculture in Western Europe. And it's very interesting that the founding fathers of America were just about saved from starvation by uh, being shown how to spike eels in the mud in the winter. Mm. Um, so the, the migratory eel, which goes absolutely dormant at uh, close to freezing. Um, they were shown how to use uh, traditional uh, native people's uh, eel spikes, how to make those eel spikes uh, from wood, um, wooden, like almost like a pitchfork, and spike in the mud till you come across uh, a very static eel, an eel that doesn't wriggle at those low temperatures and quite high food value. So it, it's kind of, it's been there and, it, and it's not quite there and, it, and it's something that can be really brought alive. Of course, your southern states have wonderful crawfish, some of the best crawfish quality um, en masse and they're also grown in, in the rice fields, uh, rice harvest and crawfish harvest. Um, and, and, and there's all sorts of potential because um, you have some wonderfully skilled fishermen right through North America, uh, both sea and freshwater. I'm, I'm always envious of some of your wonderful uh, fish species and, and, and fishing skills. Uh, being a fisherman myself, uh, have been all my life. And um, I think the potential is extremely high. Uh, we, can, we, can, we can get very high-value fish um, from um, the aquaculture of, of, of North America. Um, so that's something I'm very excited about um, because there's nothing like that fresh protein coming straight out of water. And people really do appreciate that value. We can clean those waterways up, 
there's no problem with cleaning up the waterways. There's no problem in putting in, in biofilters. Bio so biological cleaning of the waterways and, and, and um, setting up our, our ponds so they're extremely productive. Yeah, because I think your design dream would be to one day be uh, allowed to repair the Mississippi River systems because it's, it's, it's in disarray. But the solution is actually not that difficult to, to, to implement if, if they would give the go-ahead and let you do it. Yeah, well, I, I worked for the Cypress Academy and also in Louisiana we were working for the, uh, the Army Corps of Engineers and we actually had discussions about this because you have some marvelous engineering um, on the main uh, Mississippi system, which is the, the, by far the major river of North America. Um, but there, uh, the issues are accentuated as you come down to the Louisiana and New Orleans Delta. And uh, we've seen uh, the, the issues that happened with Katrina. I was actually there the year before teaching a PDC in New Orleans when Hurricane Ivan came barreling up and a million people evacuated and, and we evacuated with our PDC still running. We carried on <laughs> teaching in the bus as we went up country. Uh, <laughs> came back and finished it off after it just missed us. But the year after Katrina hit, um, it's, it's, a, it's the most abundant system. The Achafalaya Swamp uh, is, is, is an amazing system. Um, and um, to start with the catchment, which... You know, it just about starts up in, over the border in Canada and come all the way down, cleaning up the catchment so it becomes a biological abundant river system um, that it could well be. I mean, that is really the wealth of America. The major wealth of America is that main river. And it would be such a wonderful thing. And the classic thing is you have the civil engineers and the can-do attitude to do it. And, 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 and the, the countries that take this approach, the countries that take the approach to actually clean up all their biological systems, set their water works, water systems up so they actually are depositing systems that slow down the entropy of water and build the biology so that they are absolutely food secure will be seen as the future wealth, wealthy countries of the world. That's where the future wealth will be seen, in, in, in the countries that take up these systems en masse. And you can take it up river system by river system, catchment by catchment on the system. And um, all we need is someone to take up one of the top um, tributaries of the Mississippi and just start on the top of one catchment and work our way down, and we can prove it. We can prove it on the hydrology. The hydrologists with the civil engineers um, can prove that we can we can re-enhance the whole thing, and and, and that that will be, um, you know, that will that will liberalise everybody really. I got it. I got an interesting question for you that I got at, at the uh, the expo I just presented at. Guy was there with his son. His son's about fifteen. Uh, his son's going to go on to university. Pretty much, uh, the, the mom is going to make sure that happens no matter what. And the kid's an A student. He probably should. Uh, but he is fascinated at his age already with permaculture. The question was put to me, if I want a career uh, in, involving permaculture, uh, what should I study agriculturally in, in college? And my response was, don't study agriculture at all in college. Study organic chemistry or biology or possibly engineering and get your permaculture education from the permaculture world. And one of those three disciplines will allow you to take that back into mainstream thinking. 
and that you would be better off that way because if you take agricultural courses in college, you're going to take courses that are literally designed end-to-end by ConAgra and Monsanto. Exactly. It's not very popular at the moment, but uh, civil engineering, a stream of civil engineering linked with an environmental stream is becoming very popular. So you're getting a lot of young people, very positive young people, are doing environmental management at, with a civil engineering stream. So they can they can they can go into managing the environment as a career and have a full understanding of the civil engineering that's required to adjust these systems back into. Um, create, uh, creative systems that, that stack biology. Because I think we have to take an active role at this point. I think there's a lot of people that think, well, if, if we would just stop damaging stuff, everything would fix itself now. My view is there's places we've turned into desert. I mean, we've flat out turned relatively fertile prairie into desert, and it will stay that way for a very long time unless we consciously reverse the process because the the animals that were in those systems that maintained it are also gone. So we can't just say, okay, we screwed it up, we're going to stop doing these things that screw things up. We actually have to take an active role in the reconstruction of these systems. Yes, if you look at the Laos Plateau in China and you look at John D. Lewis' film, Hope in a Changing Climate, and one that I made with John green and gold, they've become quite famous. An area the size of the country of Belgium, 35,000 square kilometers of the most degraded ecosystem on this planet was completely repaired with $500 million from the UN, from the United Nations, in just 10 years. And two years of that was community consultation. And, and what they did was they, they just stopped the grazing animals and fed the an animals in compounds and subsidized the, the gra grazing farmers to do that. They forested the top of the hills. They put all the landscape that was over 20 degrees slope back into biological reserve as forests. Anything under 20 degrees slope was allowed to go into productive trees and only crops were allowed to go uh, crops are only allowed to be grown on terraces and flat country of two degrees or less. And everywhere they could put a dam, a pond, in a, in a valley, they put one. And when you actually look at the cost of that, it, it's, it's less than $1,000 an acre. It's something like $700 an acre. Um, now, that landscape would not repair itself if you left it alone and a lot of landscapes are the same now, they're not functioning. In fact, they're in dysfunction. So they are causing problems even if you leave them alone. They'll slowly cause less problems over many, many years, and then they get to a trip point where they start to function slowly, and they gradually come back into function. So they're actually in a disservice to the biosphere in their present state. That's how far we've pushed it. Now, we have to bring those environments back en masse quite quickly, and we can do it quite economically. The Laos Plateau now, in just 10 years, produces three times the amount of produce. It's three times more productive. And it is doing that on 40% of the land area that was originally being farmed. <laughs> so it, it's a classic case. And more and more governments and uh, large landscape 
situations and now looking at that as an example and asking for us to get involved because we completely understand how that was achieved and we there's no reason why we shouldn't do that and create natural capital there's more economy in a natural capital than there is in the exploitive cons production and consumption economy natural capital the economy of creating functional landscapes is in increasing capital where what we've got at the moment is a decreasing capital that's what everybody's concerned about um, and the examples are out there so you know that is something else that's being picked up and, and you know that's a great way to explain inflation Jeff and you look at modern monetary policy the value of the underlying balance sheet continues to go down and the solution of the banker is to cut it into more and more pieces and increase the currency. It's ex and, and every this is something I don't think people get um, when they when they don't understand environmentalism at all. That every single bit of wealth in the world, if you trace it back to a source, derives its 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 power from natural systems. If you take the underlying natural system away, there is no wealth left in the world. That's right. It, 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 it's a very, very simple bit of, of mathematics, really. You're taking away the base resource, and, and what we ha should have is an increased functional environment. And there is no limit to that richness. There's literally no limit. And, and we, we're only just starting to realize that that's maybe the best way to go. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. I think that there is kind of a, a, a sweep and change of consciousness uh, that, that more and more people are, are getting this. And I'm very encouraged that some of the people who are getting it because they're, they're people like me. They're not what you would think of as the usual suspects. Um, they're not you know, just out of the hippie culture or the yuppie culture. Uh, mainstream, everyday people uh, that just think of themselves over here anyway, you know, red-blooded, you know, middle-class Americans are getting this because they don't just see it as an, an environmental solution, but they also get how it benefits them, their neighbors, and their community. That's right, and and that's what's most encouraging. Someone asked me today on an interview for um, International Permaculture Day, and they they said, "What do you find the most encouraging thing out there?" And I said, "Well, actually." The most encouraging thing I find at the moment is people, and a lot of them are young people. Yeah, I agree with that. I've been to a couple of courses where uh, I'm blown away at, at, at kids, and I, you know, I call them kids because I'm in my 40s now, that are you know, 19, 20, 22 years old. And some of them are a bit overly optimistic at that point. They don't get the work. Sometimes it goes along, or the investment, sometimes it goes along. But the optimism is huge, and that... You know, optimism will carry you a long way, and the fact that they, you know, they've made a relatively uh, significant sacrifice to scrape up the money to take a design course when you're 19 isn't easy. Um, it could be, but for most 19-year-olds, it's not going to be. And to see those those kids at these events and, and see how active they get, and they're not afraid to get their hands dirty, um, that's very encouraging because I see a lot of other young people that, you know, barely can tie their shoes for themselves anymore. They they certainly don't know where their food comes from. They think it comes from you know plastic uh, cases. That's that's its origin point, and it is very encouraging to see that. Yeah, yeah, they have a full commitment to going into service for the you know for the environment and for the people of the world. They're in service, um, so you know that 
it's it's an amazing thing, and and they're they're going to go a very very long way. They're going to really understand how to work with design. So they will be the design scientists of the future. Now, I think one of the things that's that's kind of been holding us back in the permaculture world a bit is there is almost what I would call among a certain segment of us a poverty consciousness that that financial success is a bad thing or something like that. And I think that there's a tremendous business opportunity from the person that that has the engineering background that can can redesign a river system all all the way right down to the person that can go into basically a landscaping business in the permaculture way and everything in between and that there's a tremendous demand for this out there and all it's missing is the, us doing a better job of basically marketing to people who don't really care about the underlying science in other words I drive a car I don't know how to build a car but I'll go out and buy one and I think that it, it's maybe time for us to start realizing the opportunity we have as designers fr- from everything from consulting to full implementation. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot more work out there. Nobody that I know that's a good permaculture designer and proficient in designing and consulting is quiet. Everybody's busy. And so are the teachers. There's a lot of busy teachers out there. There's a great demand for people to experience permaculture systems so I think a demonstration site and an education center could be set up um, in every town across the world. I mean, somebody will realize that soon and start investing in these systems because they may not make a ridiculous amount of money, but they don't make a loss. They're actually a really good thing to do for the planet. So, you know, education centers and demonstration sites, I can imagine getting funded right across the world and definitely right across America. Um, I can see a, a permaculture research institute coming up in every state and every major district. So, and, and with that goes the people who are trained up to actually implement and go out and, 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 and work in a career that is a service to the demand. The demand is going to be there. Um, how do I implement all these systems? How, you know, who do I get in to put in gardens? Who do I get in to put in the energy systems, the waste systems, retrofit the house so it's energy efficient. Now, who do I get in just generally as a consultant? I mean, this will be a new economy for people. So um, I can see that, that will, that's really not that far away. And um, I think uh, you and I have, uh, have started to talk about how we can get that going a lot quicker. I, I think so, and I, I just look at so many opportunities. Like I, I look at it this way: I I would prefer that the government took less of people's money and did less with it and let people do it themselves. But they're doing it; they're taking it. So we might as well. It's like when I asked you about Monsanto the first time. The first thing you said instead of was "let's get rid of them," you said, "Boy, I'd like to have their budget." Right. So the 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 funds are there and they're being spent. So I look at something like the United States public school system, and school campuses are generally large. And in front of them are great big fields of green. Now, they need a football field. Fine. They need a track. They need stuff like that. But there's generally around our schools huge amounts of green space planted with a few ornamental trees and a bunch of grass. It's irrigated at taxpayer expense. It's mowed at taxpayer expense. It's weed-eated at taxpayer expense. The little bit of mulch is put down at taxpayer expense. Those green systems alone could be turned into urban foodscapes based on perennials with a little bit of annual production, the children could learn from those systems, and the cost of maintaining them would be less, and they would produce food for the local economy. 
Now, to me, the only thing preventing that in America is a bureaucrat is really tepid about doing something that no other bureaucrat's done before. They don't care if you've done it a thousand times on private property. They want to see a public works. You crack that one time, and you take that test case to every single school district in America. And if you get the, the very high-end school districts, like just a few of them, to just step over that, the ones with the highest property taxes, the most prestigious, the ones that people buy a house just to get their kids into, a few of them do that. And instead of having to push it in, it'll get drug in. Yeah. Uh, in Australia, most schools have a permaculture garden now, and we have permaculture textbooks now written in schools. Wow. Uh, and the education department funds teachers to come and get a permaculture teacher's training course to learn how to teach permaculture and bring it into all the lessons. And I tell you what, the teachers quickly learn that when you get kids out in the garden, when you get them teach, teaching them this stuff, they actually behave better. It, it has a behavioral effect, especially on the kids that they have difficulties with. So the teachers actually liked it because it made their job easier. So they, the teachers started to push it because it was, it was better for them as teachers because the, the children started to behave better. And, and some of the worst behaved kids were the ones that had the biggest change. It's like a lot of things in the environment. You get a really flat landscape, an empty landscape. That's where permaculture systems stand out the most. You get a really, really dry landscape, and you put up a permaculture oasis, it really stands out. It's the same with the children. The children that, are, that have the worst behavioral concentration problems, attention deficiency, all that stuff, that violent behavior, all of that pacifies because they find connections, they find an understanding, they find a, a whole set of analogies that work with, oh, wow, this is the way we provide our needs, this is the way we, we, we can actually see how things work. And, of course, they get to eat a bit of really fresh food as well. Yeah, I think it works for two reasons, because, one, they feel more secure, and anybody who feels more secure is less likely to be violent or disruptive. I think the other thing is if you get them engaged, it gives them an outlet for energy because we have our kids sitting in a chair for eight hours a day, and the human body and the human mind is not... ADD is a natural consequence of making a human being do what it's not supposed to do. And by getting that activity level back into a person's life, even a very young person, that, that outlet for energy allows them to channel what, was used, what used to be disruptive behavior into productive behavior, which is the same thing that happens in a landscape. We take destructive forces and make them productive. Yeah, yeah. And, and of course, every, every university in America now is looking at the, um, the Massachusetts um, Permaculture Food Garden, the uh, UMass, University of Massachusetts, won the White House Challenge with their permaculture food garden that feeds the, the permaculture canteen there. So um, all the universities in the world, in, in the USA, actually applied to uh, the United Nations. Uh, Ryan Harb was the, the champion of that young permaculture uh, student there, Ryan Harb. He championed this permaculture garden in the University of Massachusetts, and every university wants a permaculture garden now. And I get responses from people all over America, university students saying, we're putting in a food forest and we're, we're looking at your DVD and thanks for doing this work. And they're all over the States. Uh, I mean, the university students know about it and it 
and really we can bring that into our schools and our special needs schools and, and think how much money that saves society. Think how much, how better society would be if right from the get-go, uh, uh, even our kindergarten kids, our little tiny preschoolers start to learn this stuff. There's 10 things every preschooler should know. There's, there's 100 things every school sh- child should know. And there's 1,000 things that every teenager should know before they go into the workforce. And they're all environmental constants about the way the universe works, the world works, the energy patterns, and the way all of that relates to the way humanity provides our needs. I've been trying to encourage my students to write that book for the world's children because oh, wow. it's very important. I'd like to collaborate on that. Um, and, and I do think we're starting to crack those. We're get, getting cracks into those areas. The schools, another place that you're starting to see it is at the, like the city level. Uh, it's easier to get something done by a city than it is by a county or a state or a nation. So not long ago, Seattle put in the first public food forest in the United States. which is open to the public. It's about two acres. Uh, Helena, Montana is about to do the same thing this summer. In fact, I'm going to a workshop there. Dave Jackie, uh, who's just a great guy, is running that, and they're going to put in a one-and-a-half-acre public food forest. So this, to me, this is like what I was talking about. This opens the gate. So a gifted designer, someone that's trying to, to make a difference, that's looking for uh, opportunity in their local community, will by the end of, uh, of the, this coming year, when they go talk to a city board, and a city says, well, who else has ever done this before, point to two cities that did. And that lets you take a major step forward. That's a, that's a, a, a tremendous, uh, to get it the first one or two done is so much more difficult than to get the, you know, the tenth one or the hundredth one done. Mm. Mm. Yeah, so that, that's what, I mean, that's what the uh, listeners need to realize that, uh, when you take a permaculture design certificate course, it, it's about learning to become a designer. It's that transformative event that takes you into that process of thinking where you can then develop your design skills and you can become a professional in design, consultation, you can even teach or you can implement permaculture. You become someone who is a practitioner of the system. And that's what it's about. It's a, and it starts with learning the concepts of design, understanding that. You need to go through that with a good teacher. And when, once you do, what's kind, of, what's kind of the next step for people, do you think, at least right now? I mean, I know there's some things you and I are going to work on to make a, a more logical next step. But let's say somebody goes through this and goes, you know what? I, I want to be a teacher. That's what I want to do because I know that's one of your things. You're, you're, when you get a new teacher, you're very excited. So, so the person's just been through the course and they want to become uh, more of a more of a teacher. What do you think that person should be doing to progress their career as a teacher? Well, we always offer um, anyone who's keen to teach assistant teaching condition uh, um, assistant teaching. Uh, opportunities, so they can always assist another teacher. Um, they often have to volunteer for that position and be really of assistance. But there are permaculture teacher training courses, and then really, uh, you have to really get on the ground. And because it's when you when you go from the information to feeling like you've got knowledge, the understanding comes from a certain amount of actual work. So you actually go and, and get 
directly involved. So you get involved with projects and you get some actual on-the-ground experience, whether it's your own garden, your own house, your own system, somebody else's. It, it's a very harmonious, cooperative community. The permaculture community is very sharing with information and experience exchange. So people go out and they get that experience. It usually takes a little while, a few months, six months, a year, sometimes a couple of years. It depends how engaged you are in, in the rest of your life while you gain this experience. We also offer, at a lot of the major institutes, as our institute in Australia, and I'm encouraging other institutes around the world to set up 10-week internships. That's a real immersion into a on-the-ground experience where you're really running an institute and, and gaining those experience. You have to take responsibility to run that institute as your training program. So there you come out. Our interns come out very well experienced. So that's a very special side of setting up demonstration sites and education centers. You can go through after a, a permaculture design certificate course straight away, if you like, into this 10-week crash program of full immersion of the physical experience and you realize what, what you need to be responsible for. Then it's much easier then to design and implement for other people and consult for other people and teach other people. And I'd like to kind of speak to, I know I've got a, a lot of very young people in this audience as well, 18, 19, 22 years old in that range. There will, if, if you want to do that, there will never be a point in your life, um, unless you become independently wealthy, that it will be easier to take and do a commitment like that than right now. Um, by the time you're in your 30s and 40s, You've got kids, you've got anchors, you've got things that you have responsibilities to. When you're that young person, you can, you can pull up and you can go do that for a few months. Um, and, and, and then you've kind of got this rest of your life, um, to, to take it and, and drive this thing forward. You know, where I, I didn't find this until I was my mid thirties. I, I wish that I would have discovered the work that you and Bill were doing back in the eighties when I was still in school. Because there's so many things that I could have done by the time I even knew what this was, let alone um, what I could be doing now. So I think that young people really need to look at opportunities like that and grab onto them while they have that freedom in their life to do so. Yeah, yeah. I, I discovered permaculture when I was 26. I took my PDC when I was 29. And I didn't start teaching until I was 37. So, you know, um, I, I just had my last internship. I had a young man from California. He had his 18th birthday during his internship. And I had another young man from Hungary who it was 17. A 17 and 18-year-old as part of an internship. So we're getting young people who are making that commitment early. These will be the permaculture leaders of the future, these people. They will be running on what we've already done, the experience we have, they're going to springboard on from there, and 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 their experience when they you know their understanding after thirty years um, we wouldn't understand today. It, it, you know they're going to be better than us. Our, our our students will be better than we are, and they'll move faster than we do. I'll, I my commitment is that I tell all my students I want you to be a better teacher than me, a better designer than me, and a better consultant to 
than me, and I really mean it. I, I, I'm working very hard for my redundancy. That's why you're one of the most in-demand teachers in, in, in the world for anything, Jeff. That's, that's whenever I look for a mentor in something, that's what I want. I want somebody that wants me to be better. And whenever I have a student, I want them to – people that want to always be the best at everything uh, seldom actually you know, perpetrate their, their own talents because they're always, they're always holding something back. They always want to hold on to one or two secrets. The teacher that gets everything they know empowers that student to combine that knowledge and actually evolve it. Um, and it's our kids that do the evolution of all knowledge and all language because they're not afraid of things that we've locked ourselves into not doing. They'll try anything. That's why they're better at computers than we are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm always so pleased uh, when I see my students evolve systems beyond me. And, and, and show me new systems and uh, it, 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 that is probably the ultimate compliment and it's a, it's a real buzz, it's a real buzz to it and they send me photographs of new water systems and, and evolutions on beyond anything I've ever thought of, wonderful, wonderful stuff. Well, Jeff, um, we, we've had a few technical difficulties. We've gone pretty long here. I know it's late in, in the evening for you over there. Actually, it's late in yesterday's evening for me. Um, but I, I would like to thank you for being here. And if you, you just give people that maybe are tuning in for the first time to hear you, uh, how they can get involved with this new design course online, where they need to go and what have you. Um, you just need to look up uh, jefflawton.com and um, everything's there for you. And um, we'd love to see you on the course. It'd be a great pleasure. Well, cool, man. Thanks for being here. I know I could talk to you for, for hours and hours, but I do want to give you a chance to take a nap and maybe uh, catch an early surf tomorrow because I know you're close to the coast right now. Uh, as you, you've been working on this initiative, I think you guys moved a little bit to, to make sure you had fast enough Internet to handle all the stuff that's going on. And, and I appreciate you so much for sharing your knowledge here and for, uh, for working with me. Um, getting to work with you is a huge deal for me because I've followed your work for so long and for taking so much uh, time out of an incredibly busy life to uh, to be here with us now, I think for like the seventh or eighth time that you've taken the time to be on the show. Uh, so thank you for all of that, Jeff. My pleasure. Thank you very much, Jack. And folks, with that, this has been Jack Spierko today along with Jeff Lawton, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. We forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.
Yeah.